right, great job, Alex. And a uh, well-balanced young man. He can play the piano and he can climb rocks uh, too at the uh, park. So uh, good, good job there. It's time for the reading of God's Word. If we're, uh, we're going to be looking in 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, verses 32 through 37. There's a Bible there in the chair back in front of you as well as the verses will be up here on the screen as well. And that's again 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 32, verses 32 through 37. Those who are able, if you'll stand at this time, I'll read and you can follow along. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 32. The Bible says, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and smote him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and smote him, and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. Um, everybody has them. And... Uh, David undoubtedly did, even though he had been successful in uh, killing the lion and the bear and vanquishing Goliath and conquering one foe after another. But there were some things for which David was no match, and everyone has giants that uh, beset them uh, throughout their lives. And uh, we'll look at the, the last two of those tonight um, with the Lord's help, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump right in and uh, let's pray, and we'll move right into the message. Lord, would you help us and guide and direct our words, our thoughts? God, speak to us, and may this be a challenge to us. Uh, uh, Lord, may you bring conviction where needed, correction where needed, but God, may your will be accomplished. We pray and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, first thing that uh, we had mentioned is the giant of simulated spirituality. Very quickly, that's nothing but... Uh, faking what we don't have. And it's uh, knowing the part and knowing the language and knowing how we ought to act, but it's nothing more than simulated spirituality. Um, everybody, um, as I said this morning, I won't belabor the point, but I think a good number, a good percentage of God's people, Christians by profession and probably by faith, uh, they, they love salvation, are grateful for it, but they are content to go through life almost uh, apart from God and so spirituality becomes something that is nothing more than simulated. Then the second thing we mentioned was the giant of suitable situations. This is uh, the giant that uh, affects so many of us, and that is uh, wanting the right opportunity, the perfect opportunity, and we want to do that which is convenient, that which is easy, that which is popular. Uh, nothing that uh, sets us out of sorts with anything. Um, it says, it, you know, Job had mentioned um, the thing which I have greatly feared has come upon me. 
And uh, sometimes we search for opportunities to serve the Lord in our time and in our fashion. We'll talk about that uh, a little bit more uh, towards the end tonight. And then thirdly, the giant of sustained sorrow. We took from our passage, we took Matthew chapter 2 in Herod's slaughter of the innocents. And uh, it says in Ramah, there was a, a voice was heard and it was a weeping of a, of a group of people that could not be comforted. Uh, it doesn't say that uh, uh, comfort wasn't available, it just said they wouldn't. And sometimes we, uh, and by the way, I, I cannot comprehend the sorrow. I can't, I can't. I, I can't even imagine what it would have been like for those Hebrews during that particular time. I can't imagine it at all. And I don't mean to belittle it in any way. But it does say that comfort was available. By the way, God has already said that He wouldn't leave you comfortless. And so whatever you have faced in life, God has always been sufficient. It's us rejecting His comfort that's available to us. It's like uh, God giving you a way of escape through temptation. It, that way is always there. It's up to you to avail yourself to it. It's like the opportunity of salvation. That's available to everybody. I was talking in our connection group this morning. You know, it's amazing. Think about how much God loved us knowing that virtually the overwhelming percentage of people would reject him, and he came anyway. You know, I don't, I, nobody likes rejection. But God came knowing that almost everyone that's ever drawn a breath in human history would scoff, ridicule, mock, and reject the gift of his son. He knew it. And Jesus knowing, Jesus as God robed in a garment of flesh, came, left heaven to come here, knowing that most of humanity would reject him. And he came anyway. It's almost, it's difficult to comprehend that measure of love. It's far removed from anything that we would know. It's far removed from anything that we would demonstrate. Yet God did it anyway. And so by that same gift of salvation being available for all men, the Bible says the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. So everybody's had has had or will have an opportunity to trust Christ, most will blatantly reject Him and want nothing to do with it. But when it comes to a way of temptation, that opportunity is there. A way out of temptation, most don't avail themselves to it. Then when it comes for comfort during sorrow, God says, I'm there and I'm enough, but most do not avail themselves to that as well. Then we see the giant of safe and secure service. The Bible speaks about... uh, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us further in that same passage, Paul writing to Timothy, and he says, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. In other words, God says, Don't get so deeply intertwined and wrapped up in this world that you're of no good for that world. And I think sometimes it's easy to do because there's so much in this world that that we enjoy, and not necessarily bad things. I don't think most Christians say, I want to choose everything that's bad. I think they just take excess to the things that are good. There's a lot of things that are good in life, a lot of things that are enjoyable and pleasurable. But we do that at the expense of God instead of enjoying those things in certain moderation. So we see the giant of safe and secure service. We talked about those who choose comfort over character, happiness over holiness, success over surrender, and the temporal over that which is eternal. And then we come to our last two giants, which we will cover tonight. 
And the first one is the giant of stalled or slothful service. I think the, a big chunk of our faith and those who would describe themselves as Christians are found right here. And that is because we're good at putting off till another day. I don't, I don't think anybody says in their life, I don't want to do anything for God. I'm glad He saved me. I'm grateful to go to heaven, but I don't want to do anything for Him. I don't think anybody does that. I think it'd be wrong to even take that approach and assume it and, and rip anybody in a crowd and say, man, I can't believe you. I don't think anybody does that. Anybody that's genuinely born again recognizes what God has already done for them. I don't think anybody says, I don't want to, I don't want to give God anything. I don't think we feel that way. I think we all genuinely want our life to matter. I think we all genuinely want to do something and make a difference and have something that we send to the other side. The Bible says, lay not up for yourselves treasure, or treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but rather lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven. God says that there's a way to send it to the other side and nothing's ever going to happen to it. You can invest in things in this life and it be blown away and never materialize and realize, well, that was a bad deal. Probably some of us have done that. We've done that. We, you know, we don't even have the shirt to prove it because it's all gone. I mean, so we, we, we've done that. We've made those bad decisions, but we've never done anything for God that we could look and say, well, boy, that didn't count. So by the way, God has a way of measuring it that is incalculable to us. If you drop something off this week as a good testimony to this church, and more importantly, to the Lord Jesus Christ that is given to those first responders, or you drop off something for those VBS young people that will be here in a couple of weeks, or you put some extra money in the offering plate for a young person who's trying to go to camp, and, and, and you and I are past those days of going to camp. In some respects, thank God for that. But, but you're way beyond that, and, and you've got some child that wants to go, and, and you put an extra 20 or 50 or 100 or $200 towards that. There is no way to, to humanly measure that, but I guarantee you, you'll get that again. You'll see that again with even greater dividends than anything you'd ever invest in in this life. And there's there's no, no question about that. And we all know that. But there is that giant of stalled or slothful service. The Bible tells us, wherefore, you know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. I, I realize, and I say it from time to time, but I, you know, I'm closer, I'm getting closer to 60. I'm, I'm past 50, and so I'm, I'm moving ever closer to that number. And some of you are thinking, hey, that's not such a bad one. I remember it like it was yesterday. But I, but I realize, you know, my, I can't do those things that I, that I want to do and that I, I feel like I should be able to do. And, but I still think I've got plenty of time. But God reminds us all here in James chapter 4, your life is but a vapor. It's gone. Man, it just seems like yesterday I was going to camp myself. I could still see myself riding on that bus, and yes, it broke down on the side of the interstate. They all do. Hopefully ours won't, but I can still remember that. I remember going to that camp and hearing preaching and being challenged and stirred, and I can, I can still see it like it was a moment ago. By the way, the impact that you can make on those young people in those opportunities is something that can last forever but it was just yesterday. But really, it was 40 years ago. Gone like that. I think uh, probably I'm going to have other opportunities to witness and hand out a gospel track and invite somebody to church and lead somebody to Christ. 
But it could be that I've invited my last person and I don't even know it. Nobody wants to think that way. But it could be. And that's something you've got to understand. And so this giant of stalled and slothful service is the one that says, yeah, I know. You you know, I I said it earlier this morning, the devil doesn't care what you hear in church as long as you don't do anything about it. Always remember that. He doesn't care if you hear a good message, a good song, a good sermon, or a good verse is read and that speaks to you. He doesn't mind that at all, as long as you don't do anything about it. As long as you hear a challenge, a charge, a conviction, a correction, and you hear that, oh, that's good, that's good. Maybe sometime and somewhere down the road and later and later and later and later, yeah, I'm going to fix this. Yeah, I'm going to correct this. Yeah, I'm going to start doing that. Yeah, I'm going to do this. And, and, and it's always later. We continue to kick the can down the road. Hey, the devil's fine with that. He doesn't care if you come to church. He doesn't care if you're faithful. He just doesn't want you to do anything with what you hear. It's no different than somebody that you witness to. You give them a gospel presentation, and you share the Word of God with them, and you tell them, would you like to trust Christ as your Savior? No. They've heard it. They understand it, but they're making that decision. And the devil doesn't mind you listening and and taking it all in. Just don't be changed. Just don't be challenged. Just don't be charged. Just don't be convicted. Just don't do anything about it. You know, it's like going to the doctor, and the doctor says, hey, you've got to fix this, you've got to adjust this, you've got to change this. Yeah, okay, that's good. And you don't do anything about it. Well, eventually, you're going to come to a place where maybe it's too late. And such will be the case with so many people. But it is the giant of stalled or slothful service. I think one of the reasons is, first of all, we think we've got plenty of time, and nobody, nobody has any idea how long you have. No one. I, as I have gotten older, I've realized that more of my friends, people that I grew up with, acquaintances that I, that I have known, some that I went to school with, young men that I coach basketball who've gone on into eternity before me, and I was their coach. And I think about all those things because we think we have plenty of time. The second thing we mistakenly believe is that we have greater priorities, things that are more important, and they can overwhelm us. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with sports. There's nothing wrong with the games. There's nothing wrong with activities and camping and all those kind of things. Though, by the way, when we, were, we went away for a couple of days and we drove through this campground, and uh, um, my, <laughs> my wife and daughters, we realized very quickly why camping for us is the um, Hampton or Holiday Inn Express. And I know a lot of you guys like camping, but as I was looking at some of those campsites, I was thinking... Um, you know, come and listen to a story about a man named Jed, poor mountaineer, barely kept his family fed. But anyway, I mean, I, I, um, of course, it worked out pretty good for them on the other end. But, but my, my, and I realize a lot of you guys love that, and that's good, and I'm so glad you enjoy that and go for it. But you know those Hampton Inn pillows with chocolate chip cookies? Man, I'm telling you, it's just, it's just hard to beat that. I mean, it's, it's, it's all good. And I've gone camping sometimes for weeks at a time. I, I went with a group of guys and we went a couple times, uh, several times up into Canada and, and camped and, and uh, did that. And that, that was good and um, all those kinds of things. But man, I just, I don't know, Hampton Inn, just uh, Holiday Inn, all those kinds of things are just, just residence in, just even town place suites. I'm just thinking of all those, those things. Or you can go to whatever camp you wanted to go to. But anyway, nonetheless, I digress. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But sometimes they become the priority that takes a place in our life. And we pursue things and 
we miss out on what really matters. I don't regret ever taking my children to any ball game, and they, they all played, uh, you know, sports and enjoyed some things and loved volleyball and, and a number of things, and I, I'm grateful for those opportunities that they had. But I never wanted, them to, wanted it to be a priority in their life. But a lot of times with people, those things do. I never wanted it to be a question as to what really mattered. And I'm not preaching on that necessarily tonight. I'm simply saying, you better understand that when these giants come your way, you better understand what really matters to God. I have plenty of time. I have greater priorities or I have other plans. And then finally, the last giant is the giant of selective service. Selective service. You know, the Bible tells us, in fact, in the account in each of the Gospels of the week of the Passion, the the closing days and even hours and moments of Christ's life, and here He is saying, Father, if Thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Thine be done. This is our Lord praying just before Calvary. But But He has what we often refer to as a nevertheless moment. Everybody has to have that. I don't care who you are. You have to have a nevertheless moment. There is a, for the child of God, there's two things. There's a day of salvation, but there's also a day of surrender. And that's when you, and I realize sometimes people say they're one and the same, and I understand where they're coming from, and I don't want to get into that doctrinally necessarily, but I, but I do know that Everybody trusts Christ as their Savior. When they're genuinely born again, they truly have a day of salvation. But many times we struggle with surrendering to the will of God. We have a, we have a real strong tendency to hang on and, and say, you know, I want to be real selective about what I do with my, with my life. And so you have to have a nevertheless moment. You have to have a time where you say, you know, everything I've ever wanted in life, everything I've ever pursued, everything that I've ever sought is really not been God's priority. It's not been driven towards what does God want? What really matters to God? And you know, the end of the day, the only thing that matters to God is salvation of souls. That's it. Nothing else matters. You give money to missions, faith promise, and in my word, we have uh, I think I had three or four within the last two weeks of missionaries, hey, can you take us on? Can we pass through and come through? And, and I, really, to be honest with you, if, if our mission, mission giving doubled overnight, literally doubled overnight, we'd have no problem filling it. There are that many missionaries and churches that are trying to get planted. And, you know, I got one from a young man that I knew for many, many years, and he and his wife are going out to start a church in a, in a city and uh, a large metropolitan area. Hey, Brother Mason, could you write, could you write a, a letter of recommendation for me? And, I, you know, we want to we go out. We want to plant this church. Another one that's coming to our missions conference in September, they're wanting to plant a church in the Bay Area. Uh, we have a missionary to... Hungary that's coming in, a missionary to the Congo, and just, boom, one right after another, and all these places are needy to the gospel. If our missions giving doubled today, we'd have no problem today. I guarantee you, I guarantee in 30 days, we, we could take on 30 more missionaries without even batting an eye. The need is that great. And I know people plan to give more, and I want to give more, and I want my life to matter. I want my life to count. But we get real selective about our service to the Lord. You have to make the decision in your life, do I want my life to count? 
Do I want my life to matter for the Lord Jesus Christ? I asked a question last Sunday morning. It's a very pointed question, but it's one that everybody ought to ask, and that is, will anybody be in heaven because of me? Did I make a difference? Was there anybody that I reached? Even if it was a track that I left somewhere, did anybody pick it up? Was there someone who read it? I remember hearing the story, a friend of mine, and he left a track on a bench in Hawaii, and he put a contact information on that track. And he was from the States. He was just there visiting, and he left his track with a note on it, and that person trusted Christ and contacted him. That's a pretty good return. But a lot of us, we have opportunities to make a difference by giving out a gospel track. I'm here tonight because a guy gave my dad a track in 1974 at a lumber company on a Saturday afternoon after they were closing and telling us, you know, hey, we were the last ones to leave the lumber yard. I remember that like it, like it was yesterday. I remember seeing my dad, look at the track, stuck it on the visor. The next morning, went to church there. Same church, I met my wife. I told you the story. You know the story. Many of you have heard it many times. I was in sixth grade. She was in fifth grade, went to church the next morning. Everything changed for me and my family. Why? One track. I guarantee you that guy, when he, I, whoever stuck the track in the track rack at that church never saw that. He didn't have any idea. The guy who stuck the track in his pocket and thought, maybe I'll give it to this guy. And I wonder about the dynamics that went into his mind because I know it's gone through mine before. What if this guy's not interested? What if this guy blows me off? What if he cusses me out? What if he tells me I go to another church? What if he says, don't give me that trash? Because you thought the same thing when you thought about giving a gospel track. We were out there inviting people to church not too long ago, and a guy comes chasing us down and yelling at Andy, you know, don't give me that garbage, you know, I don't need this trash. And, um, and I'm, I'm thinking, by the way, that the, the sadness of that is not that, that you were accosted or offended. The sadness is that guy's going to die without God, unless God intervenes in a miraculous way, and I hope and pray that he does. But we worry about that. We, I don't want anybody to do that to me. I don't want anybody to get upset at me. I don't want anybody. And by the way, I'm not talking to being offensive or being rude or unkind or a jerk because that's not right for us. The child of God should never be that way. You don't need to treat people ugly. You don't need to treat people in a rude fashion. But somebody ought to know that you're making a difference in their life. And so we have all these giants that come our way. These giants that rob us of our joy and of our peace. These giants that keep us from living our life in a way that pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at each of these, we see the giant of simulated spirituality. And I hope that's not you tonight. I hope we are not just faking it. Then we see the giant of suitable situations. I hope we're not putting God on trial and saying, God, this is what I'm willing to do, but nothing else. Then we see the giant of sustained sorrow. Whatever hurts, wounds, or grieves you're carrying, God says, give them to me and let me have them. I know we repeat that thought and that vein often, but I can't tell you how many times over the years this continues to come up in the lives of God's people who carry wounds and wrongs and never let God have them. I believe with all of my heart, when you stand before the Lord, it'll almost be like God looks at you and says, why? Why? The Bible says, surely, that means with the utmost confidence, He hath borne, that's a past tense, our sorrows. You were never intended to carry hurt. You were never designed to keep wounds and hang on to them through life. 
It's almost as if God would look at you and say, and me, and say, why did you, why did you put yourself through that? I took all of that. There's the giant of safe and secure service, the giant of stalled or slothful service, and then finally, the giant of selective service. What are your secret giants? I just finished reading a book. Uh, I shared a little bit of it this morning in our connection group, but uh, the title of the book is 102 Minutes, and it's about the what went on in the Twin Towers on September 11th from the time of the first impact. And the events of that day, most, most of you who were of age at that time, you know where you were. You know exactly where you were when you first heard about it, when you saw the images. My wife and I will never forget, we were sitting in a hospital room watching the television waiting for Rebecca's first round of chemo. That was day one for chemo when she was uh, uh, 13 months old, September 11th. So 9-11 for us is, is kind of, ha- we, we remember it. Uh, and I was th- my mind was focused on here they are and here's our little girl and she's getting ready to start chemo. But we sat there and we watched as uh, they showed the images. And, of course, the first image we saw was of the first tower, the North Tower being struck first at 8.45 that morning. Eighteen minutes later, the South Tower is struck. And shortly after that, about a, a little bit over an hour later, the South Tower collapses. We see all those images and it's almost like you, you couldn't believe it was actually happening. It was almost surreal. The Pentagon is, is struck. And 102 minutes later, the North Tower, which was struck first, it collapses. At each one of those towers, the, when the plane struck, they both struck in speeds in excess of 400 miles an hour. The temperatures inside were so intense, and the jet fuel exploded with such fury and heat that the planes essentially evaporated. I mean, they were just disintegrated. It was just unreal. In reading that book, I, I, I could not even tell you some of the images in, in, a, in a crowd like this because they're horrific. Things that people inside those towers saw, particularly from the point of impact. I mean, you, you, you just can't imagine. And particularly, I know, as the, the North Tower and the South Tower and the, the plane, the impact point covered a number of floors. It was just, just unbelievable. But in those, in those towers, there were very few people above the point of impact that made it out. Fire was burning with such intensity and ferocity, and some of the ceilings had collapsed on those floors, and most of the stairways were just unsafe, and they were, they were virtually cut off. So all exits and access points were eliminated. There were several people who were in elevators, and two of those elevators plummeted. And the fail-safe system caught them just before they reached the ground, stopping them abruptly about 10 feet before they hit the ground. You can imagine if you were in an elevator and the cables were severed. I'm just reading that. I get goosebumps just even thinking about it. And here's a packed car of people in an elevator plummeting and then abruptly halting just before impact. Some of those people, even from that fall, didn't survive. Just from that fall, as you can well imagine, falling hundreds of feet. 
there was one stairwell in the uh, South Tower that was open. It was the only one. There were only, in fact, fewer than 20 people above the impact zone in either tower escaped. That's amazing to think about, those hundreds of people that were up there. Many of them going about their business. Some of them had gathered for a huge breakfast meeting at the Windows of the World restaurant at the top of the towers. There are images of people that were sent on their phones who were taking pictures. Hey, we're here, Windows of the World, September 11th, you know, we're here for this meeting. This is awesome. Check out this view. One of the images that was sent, it was sent two minutes before impact. And those people that were in there didn't survive. Nobody saw that coming and nobody saw the disaster. But one of the the most tragic things about it is there was one stairwell by which you could exit. Stairwell A. But everybody assumed that every stairwell had been destroyed, wiped out. But this one. There were 18 people on a floor somewhat above, just above the point of impact in the South Tower, and they got out. As soon as the impact occurred, they headed to the stairwell. Natural instinct takes over. I got to survive. I got to get out of this. And you can, I, I, I can't even imagine what would be going through your mind with the smoke and the heat and the flames. And I just, unreal. What happened? Was it a bomb? Was it this? Was it that? So much speculation initially. Nobody had any idea what was unfolding. Those 18 people escaped, and according to most records, none of them ever told anybody how they got out until after the fact. Because human survival instincts take over, and your natural instinct is to flight. It's to run, it's to flee, it's to escape. But there was a way out for the more than 600 people above the point of impact who were alive after the point of impact but went down the wrong stairwells, saw that there was no way to get out. The fire was coming up. The ceiling was collapsed. The walls were crushed in. And so they did what their natural tendency was, and that was to try to make it to the roof. So many of them climbed from floors 86, 87, 88, all the way up to the top of the tower. The tower doors were locked, and they couldn't get out, and there was no way that a helicopter could rescue anyway because the flames and the smoke, it was just, it wasn't even safe. It was creating its own weather up there at that elevation. But those 18 people who left, and as they were got out, one of the men said as soon as the impact occurred, he was thrown against the wall, and he didn't even realize, but he got to the stairwell, and he didn't stop till he got to his barbershop several blocks away in Manhattan, not even knowing what he'd been through, and his clothes were burnt off, just in a state of shock. I tell that story, and I think about that hundreds of people. If maybe someone on the way out would have said, to a first responder, hey, stairwell A is open. We were on the 86th floor. We got out through stairwell A. That was was the only way out. I know the other ones are cut off, and there's hundreds of people up there that are going to perish, but stairwell A is open. Do you realize that every person here tonight, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you got out stairwell A? There's a lot of people that won't. Nobody would imagine that in 62 minutes that building was going to go down. Nobody. Even the engineers, and then finally one of the engineers sent word to the chief who was operating the command post there that had moved away from the towers. And he said, he said, we're looking at images and we can see that the tower is shifting at the top and it looks unstable. Get all your first responders out. 
Over 400 of them perished because they couldn't get radio communication to them to exit. It was just, everything was just so uncertain about what was going on. But those 18 that ran by, none of them said, stairwell A. I'm not faulting them. Don't misunderstand me. Please, if you think that, I, you're missing my point. Because I can't imagine. I'd have probably kept running. I'd have thought, get me out of here. I get home to my family, my children. What in the world has happened? And you realize that most of us, when it comes to salvation, we're just thrilled to know we're not going to hell. But the greatest mistake that we ever make as a child of God is we don't look back and tell them how we got out. Stairwell A for us is Jesus Christ. It's the only escape. And most of the people will perish because we don't tell them how we got out. What are your secret giants? I think for many of us, it's selective service. It's safe service. It's secure service. It's stalled service. But for every child of God, it ought to be faithful service. I'll ask us again tonight, who will be in heaven because of you? Will anybody be there because of me? Will there be anybody that comes up to me and says, hey, Stuart, you handed me a track at a restaurant. I was your waitress. You didn't know what was going on in my life. But I took this home that night. I read it. And you know that prayer thing on the back? I did it. I'm here today because of it. Maybe there'll be somebody who picks up that track and doesn't even know who left it, but you'll find out when you get there and you realize you made a difference for someone's eternity because you told them stairwell A is open and it's the only way out. Jesus Christ is ready and willing to save. Don't let our secret giants be the thing that keeps us from telling the good news. Shall we stand?